0: Well, here we are again. I'm I'm going to tell a story this morning. I'm going to tell a story in two chapters in Genesis, and I'm, I'm just astonished every time I go through this book um, at the depth, at the um, layers of meaning that are packed into it, and at how useful. And how it ties together. Um, New Testament references to the book of Genesis are just far more numerous than you can count. When the book of Hebrews begins um, the hall of fame of those who have been saved by their faith, um, they begin with Adam and Abel and Enoch and Noah from the book of Genesis. So, from the Old Testament to the New, this is clearly foundational. And Jesus quotes from the book of Genesis, and ascribes the authorship of the book to Moses. He says, as Moses said, and then he quotes Genesis. So there's lots of good reasons for us to be studying this book, the book of beginnings. Let me pray first, and then, uh, then we'll talk some more. Father, thank you again that we have the opportunity to gather together to come into fellowship with each other, to enter into your halls and your gates and your courts, and to bring you our praise, and to think about how you have revealed yourself in your word, how you spoke through the prophets, how you spoke through Moses, how you revealed yourself in your Son, and how you have called us and instructed us and commanded us, to lay these things up in our hearts. I pray, Father, that you would help us all send your spirit to open the scriptures to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Um, yeah, next slide, we'll do a little bit more background here, right? There'll be a test on this later. All you have to do is memorize this chart, you'll understand the book. No, it's um, the big picture here, 50 chapters, it's a big book. Um, the first 11 chapters are from creation through the flood and the Tower of Babel. That's a quarter of the book, essentially. And then the other three quarters of the book is Abraham and his descendants. So there's about a quarter of the book on Abraham, about a quarter of the book on Isaac and Jacob, and then a quarter of the book on Joseph. We, we know the familiar phrase because it's used often uh, in the Old Testament as a... Um, an identifier for who God is. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's absolutely true and important. But if you look at the structure of the book of um, Genesis, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. I could talk about the whole book for a long time, but I'm not going to. Okay, next slide. That's where we are. In the middle of all of this, yeah, here we go. Here's the four parts. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers. So we're, I want to talk about chapters 18 and 19, sort of in the middle of the story of Abraham. Um, next slide. Here's the prologue to my movie. Here's the flashback at the beginning. Here's what you need to know before I can lay out the scenes in these two chapters, and I think it's a screenplay. I absolutely do. I, I almost am tempted to set my fingers to the keyboard and do this as a screenplay. I'm gonna try and give you some, some images and um, sequences here as we go through. So here's the prologue. Before we get to chapter 18, God has already called Abraham, He's already led Abraham to leave the city of his birth. He's already called Abraham and sent him and shown him the promised land and revealed to him promises. And he will make a covenant that he will bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham and his descendants. And Abraham and Sarah have already tried to help God out with this plan. Sarah says, you know, I'm, I'm too old to have kids. So um, take my maid, Hagar, and raise up a son with Hagar, so that God can keep his promise. How many of you know it's not a good idea to try and help God keep his promises? Yeah. So God had a plan, and Abraham and Sarah had a plan. Let's see, which plan? Yeah. Uh, That didn't work out well. But um, by the time you you get to um, Genesis 17, Abraham is 99, Sarah is 89, And there's Abraham's son, Ishmael, is 13. But Sarah is not Ishmael's mother. So God appears to Abraham in chapter 17 and says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. He tells Abraham, you and Sarah will have a son. And Abraham is skeptical. Genesis 17:17 17, 17 says, "He fell on his face, laughed, and said to himself, "I will be a hundred next year, and Sarah will be 90." So God tells Abraham not a new word, by the way, this is a, a restatement, a reaffirmation of his promise and covenant. He says, I will give you and Sarah a son. And Abraham laughs. And says to himself, That ain't happening. It's not possible. I'm a hundred years old. I'll, I will be a hundred years old. If we have a son next year, that's the year I turn a hundred. That's the year Sarah turns ninety. Ain't happening. Okay. Now we start our story. Scene one. We'll just read it first, but try and picture the images. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Continuing on, Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, Three says of fine flour, knead it, make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd, took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. That's the scene. And you, Can you picture? Because there's two parts to this. And they're both significant. Abraham... Go back a slide, please. Abraham, in the heat of the day, which is usually when you take a nap, in the heat of the day, he lifts up his eyes, and he sees three men. And it says he ran. He didn't just kind of saunter out or drag himself from his tent. Oh, gosh, there's people here. We got company. We got company. No, no, he ran to them and offers them hospitality. And his promise of hospitality is very modest. He says, sit down under a tree. It's shady. Sit down under a tree. We'll bring a little water. We'll wash your feet. And I'll bring you a little little something. I'll bring you a morsel of bread. And, And then you can go on. He says, just sit in the shade, I'll bring a little water, and I'll give you a morsel of bread. And then he runs off quick and says, forget the morsel of bread, bake fine cakes. Runs to the herd, says, get a calf. We're going to make a banquet, we're going to make a feast. Kill the calf and cook it. And he comes back to his guests, and he has not just a morsel of bread. Curds and milk, not water. Milk, and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them and then he stood by them under the tree while they ate. You almost have to picture him with a towel over his arm as a waiter, as a servant. He doesn't sit down and eat with them. He serves them. This is extravagant hospitality for strangers. But I think this scene is important for the movie because this scene shows us something important about Abraham. Something important about his character, something important about... It doesn't say that he recognized them as angels or as God. Perhaps he did. It says the Lord appeared to him, but then it says he, he beheld three men. I don't know I, I, I'm, part of me suspects that this is just who Abraham is that he is someone who is both kind and generous and not proud his offer of hospitality is modest but his delivery is extravagant well, let's move on and I'm going to skip over that i got too many scenes to spend too much time on this. So go on to get to scene two. There you go. So apparently after the meal, they've enjoyed his his feast. They, the three men, or maybe two, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. This is the same promise that had been made again in 17, or reaffirmed in 17. This is the third affirmation from God of this promise. I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. I'm going to come back in a year, and when I come back, you and Sarah are going to have a son with you. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Next slide. I'm going to finish the scene here. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? And say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. By the way, the the name Isaac means laughter. Laughter. So they named the kid Laughter. Now, my wife informs me that there is, among women, um, a misapprehension of this story going around, saying that because Sarah laughed, she did not have the same faith that Abraham did. And um, she just wanted me to uh, correct that misapprehension because in the previous chapter, in the prologue, Abraham laughed. And was skeptical. In this chapter, Sarah laughs and is skeptical. Both of them are affirmed by name in Hebrews 11 as having had faith. So how do we reconcile that Abraham had faith in God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and Sarah by the power of faith conceived and bore a son? That's Hebrews 11.11. How do we reconcile Hebrews saying they were both people of faith with both of them laughing at God's promise here? I think Genesis is brutally honest and realistic about the human experience. We hear some of God's extravagant promises and claims and we hear his call to trust him and that he knows what's best for us, that he has plans for us to prosper us and to bring us into conformity to the image of his son to save us. And sometimes we just go, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do that. Because we don't know how he's going to do that. We think sometimes we might be able to help a little bit. There might be something we can do, we, you know. I know God knows what he's doing, but I'd like to offer a few suggestions. Um, it reminds me of one of my favorite rabbinical jokes. Um, I think it's actually in Fiddler on the Roof. The old rabbi um, turns to one of the members of the village and says, you want to make God laugh? You want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. So Sarah and Abraham laugh. Uh, this, this This is now the third time that God has affirmed this promise. And Abraham has laughed at it, and now Sarah has laughed at it. And God says, Is anything too hard for me? Do you believe that I can do what seems to you impossible? Do you believe that I can do what seems to you laughable? And it's it's interesting, I think, um, I understand why Sarah is frightened. Um, God says, why did Sarah laugh? Sarah says, I didn't laugh. And God says, oh no, you did laugh. But I, I, I don't sense that as a, a, a rebuking, shaming kind of voice. I just sense it as a gentle No, no, you did laugh. It's okay. We're all gonna laugh together about this in a year. That that literally is the way the story plays out. We'll all laugh together this time next year, because this time next now remember it takes a human child nine months from conception to birth. And God is saying, I'm gonna come back a year from now and you will have a son. Sarah presumably is not yet pregnant, but she's going to be, and she's going to give birth before a year is out. Okay, scene three. The men set out from there. Remember, there were three men who had showed up. They looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, And their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Got to continue the scene here. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. So apparently one of the men is God. Two of the men, angels presumably, have gone on to Sodom. Abraham drew near and said... If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in this city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham's persuaded God. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Next slide. And Abraham continues the conversation. He's just succeeded. And now he's like, can I ask another question? Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he, God, said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again, he spoke to him. Abraham spoke to God. said, suppose forty are found there. God answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then Abraham says, "Um, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. God answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham says, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. God answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then Abraham says once again, Let not the Lord be angry. He's anticipating this next question. If he keeps questioning God, he might eventually make God angry. Let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. God answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, this is a great scene. This is scene four. By the way, this is the end of chapter 18. First four scenes, there are six more scenes, and then my little screenplay will be done. Um, we go back to the beginning here and just reflect on a few things. Um, the preface to the bargaining between God and Abraham is very interesting in the details. There are some unexpected details in this. Things that we might not um, immediately see, but which are not obvious, and not the way I think we would have written the story, the way I would write the screenplay. It's the way God actually acted. Abraham's just set a feast out for these three men. They're continuing on their way. They're going towards Sodom. Abraham apparently has no idea why they've showed up at his tent. He doesn't know why they're going to Sodom, but he's given them hospitality. And it says, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham hasn't asked, um, where are you guys going? What? what and when you get to, uh, you're going towards Sodom. When you get there, what are you going to do? God says, "Should I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do?" And then He gives an explanation for why He is going to make a revelation to Abraham. Why He's going to give a prophetic word to Abraham. He says, "I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm about to do," and here's why I'm going to tell him. I'm going to tell him. Because he will become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I'm going to tell him because from him will come nations. And Abraham needs to know what I'm about to do and why I'm doing it. And see it because it is important for his understanding of how God acts in history. How God judges in history why God brings destruction on certain nations in history. That's not enough of the reason, though. God goes on to say, I have chosen him. You didn't know the book of Genesis was um, Calvinist reformed theology, did you? I have chosen him. Abraham didn't choose me. Aaron didn't suddenly come to his senses and read some scroll or say, you know, I think I need to follow Yahweh. I think I need to give him my wife. I think I need to. God says, I have chosen him. It was my initiative. I made Abraham. I selected him. And I selected him so that he may do these things. Command his children and his household. Do righteousness and justice. And bring him to what has been promised to him. He says, "Because of all these things, I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm doing. I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm about to do." And then he does this pronouncement in 21 and 22, or sorry, uh, verse 20 and verse 21. Is not just God making a general proclamation to the world. It's not appearing in the sky with a message for the the people of the the valley of the uh, ten cities. This is God saying to Abraham, God says to Abraham, here's what I'm doing, here's why I'm doing it. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And I'm going down there to see what's going on and see if it really is as bad as the things that I have heard, the stories that I have heard. And I think there are a couple of implications there um, that, again, might might need to be um, reflected upon. I don't think God is unaware. I don't think God is in any doubt. I don't think God has to wait until he gets to Sodom and Gomorrah I know what's going on. I think God already knows. But he's saying this to Abraham because Abraham surely has heard the same outcry. Abraham has heard the stories. Abraham and Lot have been living in this area for At least 10 years now. Abraham surely has heard the reputation of the people of Sodom. And God's just saying, you know, I know you've heard. I've heard too. I'm on my way to see. Abraham's like, hmm, this could get interesting. And that's when Abraham begins the bargaining. So the prologue is God saying, I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm about to do, and here's why. And he does. And Abraham's response, again, I think this is, this is intended to help us see the heart of Abraham. Abraham's response is, Surely you will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Abraham's confident that that's the truth about God's character. In nature. Abraham says, I know, Lord, I know you will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. So what if there are 50 righteous men still in Sodom? And God confirms that Abraham understands his character. God confirms, yes, you are right, that's, that's, that is my nature. I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. If there are 50 righteous men in Sodom, I will not destroy the place for the sake of those 50 righteous men. Now, we don't know how big Sodom was. It's not a city of a million. Not in that part of the world, not in that desert. Um, a city of several thousand would be large in that valley. Not a lot of agriculture, not a lot of food supply. It's not a huge place. It's, it's a large settlement for the area, but not in the whole perspective of human civilization, certainly not of... Um, our current distribution of cities and populations. We would think of it as a small place. And we would think of the king of Sodom as um, a local tribal chief. So we're probably not talking about but a couple of thousand people. And, And Abraham says, what if there are 50 among those several thousand? And so in the end, Abraham's confidence in... God's justice is what leads him to persist in this conversation. Even with some trepidation that I might be making God angry if I keep doing this. But he is confident that God is righteous. God says, you're correct. I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Okay, scene five. Chapter 19, we move on. The two angels, there were three men. Apparently, two of those three men were angels, and one was God. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. That's the whole scene. Three verses. And again, the interesting thing is two men show up, strangers. Lot sees them. Goes to them, says he rose to meet them, humbles himself and offers them the hospitality of his home. Offers them a meal. It says a feast. He made them a feast. Lot is like his uncle. It's offering hospitality to strangers. Now, he may have some slightly different or some additional motivations for all this. We'll talk about that in a second. But two men show up. He sees they are strangers. Sitting in the gate, by the way, um, probably means that he was among the respected leaders of the city. He'd been there for at least 10 years. And to sit in the gate is a place where um, a judge could settle disputes. If you're sitting in the gate, it means you are recognized as a judge who can settle a dispute between two parties. So Lot has a place of some prominence and prestige uh, in the city. And he gets up, and he humbles himself, and he offers hospitality, and he makes a feast. Now we know a little bit of something about Lot. Scene six. Before they lay down, after the feast in Lot's house, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, Surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, "Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them and yes, the between the lines is absolutely intended. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, "'I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please only." Do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. And they said, Stand back. They said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men, i.e. the two angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. There's a scene. You see the camera angles and the cuts from inside the house to outside the house, from Lot back to the angels to the crowd of angry men with wicked, depraved intent. And the angels rescue Lot and bring him in the door and close the door. And then they blind the man outside. This scene shows us that the outcry against Sodom is very real. They are as bad as their reputation. They are every bit as bad as what Abraham has heard. Their outcry, the outcry against them that has reached the Lord is True. It has just been confirmed by their actions here. Even when they are blinded, they are attempting to continue their wicked and depraved assault. They've been blinded outside this house. You don't turn in anguish and despair and dismay and try and find their way home. It doesn't stop them. They are blinded and they are continuing to try and find the door and break it down. Sodom is as bad as its reputation. Scene seven. Then the men, the angels, said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone you have in the city? What a great scene. What a gr- I mean, I can set the camera angles up and think about the edits back and forth between the angels and Lot, and then Lot going and finding his daughter's fiancés By sons-in-law here, means they're betrothed, but not yet married. They're not yet living with Lot's daughters. They are young men in the city of Sodom who have contracted marriage with Lot's daughters, but it's not yet taken place. And Lot says, we got to get out of here, guys. There are two angels at my house, and they say they're about to destroy the city. We have to leave. we got to get up and go. The Lord is about to destroy the city. And this only really makes sense against the backdrop of Abraham's bargaining with God. Abraham said, 50 righteous men, 40, 30, 10. He stops at 10. And these two angels are going, Lot, you got anybody, anybody that will listen to you. We're about to destroy this place. Are there any righteous men that you know of anywhere in the city? It's not a huge place. Lot knows everybody in the city of Sodom. It's only a few thousand people at most. And he certainly knows at least two young men who are betrothed to his daughters. And nobody will come. Lot doesn't know of anyone who will listen to him. Nobody listens to him. Eventually, the only people who are willing to flee, to heed the warning, to make their escape, are four people. Lot, his wife, his two daughters. That's it. Four people. And they do leave. Scene eight. Morning dawned. The angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. God is a righteous God. He will not punish the righteous with the wicked. You need to get out of here because God's about to punish the wicked. But he lingered. Wow, if ever there is a condemnation of someone's behavior, Lot has been warned most urgently, but he lingered. So the men, and by men we mean the two angels, seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, literally physically grabbed them, the Lord being merciful to him brought him out and set him outside the city. Say, Here's the gates. You're outside. Don't go back. It's not safe. The city is about to be destroyed. Run. Flee. As they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my wife will be saved? He said to him, The angel said to Lot, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Apparently they're up before dawn. Zoar, by the way, means little or insignificant. You say, you know that little... This is a small village. This is maybe 30 people, 30 to 50 people. And by the way, we don't know really who's telling this story. This is, this is almost certainly not an original composition of Moses. This is not, God doesn't reveal to Moses. By the way, let me tell you about something that happened um, 500 years before you were born. Genesis is a collection of earlier writings put together, edited by Moses. But this is probably an account written by Abraham. Just, this, book is, this is the book of the generations of Abraham. I mean, this is probably Abraham's account. And so this is Abraham explaining, yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah were larger places. They were wiped out. There's this little insignificant town over here. It's still there. And you know, it's called insignificant. It's called like no place. The lot says, I can't make it to the hills. It's a little itty-bitty village over there. Can I just stop there? If I get there, will you spare that village? Let me stay there. And the angel says, okay, fine. Go, go to no place. Go to Insignificant. It'll save you. Scene nine, coming to the end of my movie. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. That place where he had stood before the Lord was the place where he had bargained, saying, God, I know you will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. He goes back to that spot, which is high up on the ridge, looking down into the valley overlooking these cities. He goes back to the place where he had stood before the Lord. and He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, The smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now I did a lot of CGI work for this scene. Sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Overthrew the cities, actually, not just the cities of Son of Gomorrah, the whole valley, all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground scorched the earth. And here's the interesting thing Lot's wife looked back and is instantly killed. But it's not the looking back that has the physical consequence. Because Abraham goes to his spot on the ridge overlooking the valley and looks down. Abraham looks. He's not killed. He's not turned to a pillar of salt. Abraham looks and sees the destruction. Abraham has to have a moment of revelation at that point. Abraham has to say, "I, I talked with God. We talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. I pressed God. I asked him repeatedly, Lord, I know you are just and righteous. I know you won't destroy the righteous with the wicked. And here's the destruction of those cities. And why is it important for Abraham to see the destruction of the cities? Because he's going to be the father of nations and the father of kings, he's going to write this account down. This is a revelation of who God is and how He acts in history and what He does. Abraham writes this story and says, "I bargained with God. I I, I told God I knew He was righteous and just. That's Abraham's faith in God's nature." And that he would not destroy the righteous with the wicked, but he destroyed these cities. There is a scene 10, but I'm not sure I want to go into it. The rest of the chapter, the ending eight verses of the chapter of Genesis. It's there, I have to tell it. Because not all stories have happy endings. But all Scripture is given for our profit, for our instruction, for our benefit. There is something important in every part of Scripture. Because in scene 10, we go back to Lot. We had Lot fleeing to this little village, no place. And we had Abraham seeing the destruction of the city. Abraham thought he had bargained with God said that God would not destroy those cities, but God destroyed those cities. Now we go back to Lot. Lot, apparently, Zoar is not the place he thought it was. Lot leaves Zoar. He leaves no place. He goes up into the hills, finally, with his two daughters. He was afraid to live in Zoar. He lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old, there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So made made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. That's scene 10. Not a happy ending. It's like they think they're the last people on earth. I've seen the cities destroyed. Lot is not blamed in this directly. He he does not appear to be consenting to this activity or even conscious of the Um, immorality of his two daughters. It seems there was a little bit of Sodom left in Lot's daughters. They had been physically rescued from the city, but living in the city had had an effect upon them. Lest that be a completely sad ending, though, as the credits roll, somebody's got to put a verse in Or not a verse. Well, maybe a verse. A line or two as the credits roll after this tragic scene of depravity and immorality. It says, And one of the descendants of Moab was Ruth. And one of her descendants is David and the Messiah. fade the black so what does all this mean what what's the lesson in this for us today god is a righteous god god acts in history god judges nations And he explained to Abraham what he was going to do because Abraham was one he had chosen, one he had called. And not just Abraham, but the promise was to Abraham and his offspring and his descendants, amongst whom are we. We can all count ourselves. Not that we have replaced the descendants of Abraham. The New Testament, Paul in Romans says, we have been grafted in In Ephesians, Paul says the mystery that was hidden for a while but has now been revealed is that salvation is not just to the Jews, but now also to the Gentiles. He doesn't say it's not for the Jews any longer. That's not there. He says the mystery is salvation is not just to the Jews, not just to the physical descendants of Abraham. Salvation is now to the Jews and to the Gentile world. Because God's original promise was that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Not just his physical descendants, but all the other nations as well. And that salvation would eventually, through Abraham and his descendants, come and be available to all mankind. To all the nations. And every knee, every tongue. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But God is a righteous God. And God will reveal to those whom he has called and chosen, not always, but sometimes, what he is going to do when it is important that they know who God is and what the meaning of these events are. If you want to know about the character of God, if you want a revelation of who God is, it's here. Read the Scriptures. They're not dull and dead. Let them play out in your mind as the scenes in a movie. This is a great story. This is carefully constructed. Abraham has thought about these events. Abraham has thought about what happened how this began with strangers showing up and an offer of hospitality and a feast. And then the strangers went on to Sodom. But God stayed behind and told me what he was going to do. And then it happened. I saw from the oaks of Mamre up here on the top of the ridge, I saw looking down the destruction of these cities. And it's recorded so that we would know about it too. I hope that is of some benefit to you. I hope that God, in His infinite wisdom, God, through His Holy Spirit, will convey to us what it means, what effect it should have on how we view the world and the events. And nations, what it means for us as individuals, that we are part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. We are blessed through Abraham because God promised Abraham that we would be. And we are. Let me close this in prayer, and you'll be dismissed. Thank you, Father, for giving us your word. I pray now, Father, that you would go with these people, that you would lead all of us, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us hearts that are kind and generous and anxious and willing to offer extravagant hospitality to strangers. Sometimes that may mean we entertain angels unaware. Sometimes it may mean we just offer a drink of cool water to someone who needs it. Pray, Father, that you will help us to understand the times and the nations that we would have Abraham's faith in your righteousness. Thank you, Father, for all you have done for us, all the ways you have blessed us, for giving us your word, for recording these things, for our edification and understanding and upbuilding. And Father, I pray that you would deliver all of us from the plague. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be blessed.